Hi, I'm Matt Trueblood. This is the True Blood Baseball Podcast. Been a long time since I recorded an episode, and I didn't ever get that much traction with them, so I don't even remember what number it is. But anyway, this is my baseball podcast where I just sort of talk at you for 10 or 15 minutes and apparently go weeks between episodes. I'll try not to do that going forward. Uh, some of it is just dependent on my time. I've got a lot of other things to be sweating lately, and so baseball stuff, and especially ancillary baseball stuff, sort of has to slide to the back. But I thought today'd be a good day to stop and have a chat about Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. It's Thursday, January 17th, and neither of them has a home, which is moderately surprising, right? I think even given the atmosphere we knew we were in in terms of the free agent market, it's a bit surprising that neither of the two huge names on the free agent uh, C's would be scooped up by now. But what's far more surprising to me is that it doesn't feel like either one is that close. Uh, that we find ourselves with Machado. You know, there are conflicting reports about what's been offered to Machado and no one sounds like a deal is right around the corner. And we don't need conflicting reports in regard to what's been offered to Bryce Harper because the reports are pretty clear and consistent that not a whole lot has been offered to it. We know the Nationals threw a big offer on the table before he became a free agent. We believe that they increased or at least reaffirmed that offer at some point this winter. I don't know if we know whether that's still on the table. I do know that the Phillies have been circling around Harper and circling around him, but haven't seemed to step forward and make an affirmative offer. Uh, The White Sox showed some interest in Harper, but it hasn't seemed to gain a lot of traction. And beyond that, we don't know a lot about his market right now. I, I think the Dodgers are still lurking. I'm one who believes there's still some universe in which the Cubs decide to take the plunge with Harper, but that chance is disappearing rapidly. Uh, And what's left is this strange market and a strange strategy by Scott Boris, who perhaps, you know, wary of where things stand in terms of the market that was established last winter, I think has sort of intentionally been avoiding uh, direct offers to Harper, things that might put a number on his services that other teams wouldn't feel a need to top. He's trying to keep things abstract because in the abstract he can operate a little bit more and flex some of that Scott Boris muscle. It doesn't seem clear to me that it's working, though. And if Manny Machado signs a deal that is only worth, you know, a couple hundred million dollars, maybe a a hair more, but doesn't begin to approach 300 million the way the Machado camp reportedly is still hoping it will, then that strategy backfires big time because for better or worse, and I don't think it's a sound strategy, but it is the way things work. Teams are going to anchor any offers to Harper in what Machado signs for. It does seem clear that Boris is betting Machado gets a big enough deal to make that anchor something that works in his favor. I think it's clear at this point, though, that it could swing the other way. So here we sit, and I think what I am 
rolling back to more and more often as I ponder these two because it's what baseball fans are doing this time of year, right? I think even as we wrestle with and grow frustrated with the state of free agency, the state of the offseason, the state of labor relations and ownerships, uh, broad reticence to spend, that we just keep landing on Machado and Harper because they're very interesting free agents. I am not, as those who follow me on Twitter probably already know, someone who believes that these two are uh, victims of the current market climate. I think this correction to the market is, is not necessarily a correction. It's very much a distortion for the middle of the free agent class and certainly for guys further down than that. But elite talents like Harper and Machado have historically been overpaid. And I think this is a true market correction where they're concerned. If they both come in under $300 million, at least given where things sit with the current CBA, the rule set that everyone's playing by at the moment, that will make sense to me. But that doesn't mean that they're not interesting or that they're not very, very good. And what jumps out and is compelling to me, the reason why I think we're kind of stuck here and the only team that you really see keeping the doors wide open to both guys is the Phillies, is that these two are so profoundly different that it's hard to get a handle on which anyone should prefer and by how much. They're both 26, we know that. That makes them very young for free agents. They're both very talented, although each have different concerns tied to them. I think you can make a fairly compelling case that both of them have significant injury-related concerns. Machado moved fine and played a fine defensive shortstop you know, when he insisted upon playing there this past season. But in the long term, he's probably a third baseman. And we have to keep in mind, even though, again, it's not necessarily showing up every day in his play, that this is a guy who's had each knee essentially rebuilt after severe injuries early in his career. That doesn't mean he's going to become Miguel Cabrera in three years or something. Uh, but I do think it's, it should inform the discussion about his long-term defensive home and his utility at that long-term defensive home. And it obviously slows him down on the bases. Even now, uh, several years removed from the more recent of the two injuries. With Harper, it's more than two injuries. It's pretty regular interruption of his momentum toward becoming the guy that was promised when he first arrived on the pro scene from myriad air, you know, myriad sources. Uh, sometimes it's running into a wall or slipping on first base. And there have been a couple of somewhat more chronic-seeming things in there, too. I'm not saying that either one is fragile or should be heavily discounted because of these particular injury issues. They don't strike me as that kind of problem. But they do tinge the picture for any team that's looking several years down the road and considering offering a deal that presumably would lock them into 
what do you figure, at least seven years and as many as 10 or more. Uh, anybody who's making that kind of decision, taking that kind of long-term risk, has to weigh even relatively minor things in the, in the track record, like the injuries both of these guys have suffered. Not that in either case, injury is the primary source of risk. I think when you look at Machado, you have to consider that there are some intrinsic risks in his profile and in his comportment. We know, you know, the stuff that cropped up right during the playoffs last year, his attitude toward hustle, and some of that is superficial. Some of it is real and maybe has been downplayed by people who are wary of feeding into ownership's narrative toward him. It's good to be wary of doing that, but also uh, whether hustle is valuable or not, an attitude toward the game that focuses not only on winning and playing hard, but playing your best and being your best from day to day is crucial. And there have been plenty of moments over the years where Manny Machado hasn't necessarily demonstrated that kind of makeup. He's also a guy who, you know, we saw the, the incident between him and Jesus Aguilar sort of kicking him on the way by at first base. I didn't think that was all on Machado. I thought Aguilar got off scot-free when perhaps he oughtn't to. Uh, and I thought it was more was made of it than perhaps ought to have been. But it informed a narrative. It, it held with a pattern of behavior from Machado over the years. This guy has been prone to fighting, prone to taking offense at small things and reacting in fairly dangerous ways, to be frank. Although small and petty, still dangerous. So there's risk there with him on a personality level. It doesn't have to impact the way he plays on the field. In fact, he's demonstrated that pretty clearly because those risks have always been lurking there, and yet his performance has been pretty consistent. It's even consistently improved. The risk as a player is tied to whether or not he'll handle failure when it comes for him in a positive way, whether or not he can make the sort of necessary adjustments that he'll need to make as he ages and the bat slows down or whatever might happen that alters the way his game works. He's a guy who, if you look at his aggressiveness early in the count, first pitch swing rates, that kind of thing, swing rates overall, inside and outside the zone, his plate discipline, his contact rate, his launch angles, his ability to consistently get the ball in the air or not, those things have held pretty darn steady over the last few years. He's a guy who hits the ball hard with tremendous frequency, doesn't draw a ton of walks, has learned not to strike out very much. But again, there haven't been many changes to his approach despite this sort of upslope in results. That's a good thing. That means he's maturing and getting better at at delivering on the opportunity he creates when he decides to swing. But it could be something that backfires if through injury or through aging, 
in a few years, he finds that he can't do that as well anymore. If he's unable to make the approach adjustments you want to see as a guy ages and his body dictates that changes need to be made or the league figures something out, uh, maybe Machado can't necessarily be trusted to make those adjustments as well. Harper is the absolute antithesis of that, but it's just this scary. In fact, I think it's scarier. I think if I had to bet on one guy for the long term, I would want to bet on Machado because I feel like I have a clearer picture of who he is as a hitter and who he'll remain as a hitter. (laughs) Harper, again, tracking the same things that I just described with Machado. Contact rates, swing rates, in and out of the zone, early in counts, late in counts. It's varied wildly from Harper over the last even two years. You know, he goes in hot and cold streaks that are tied to the fact that he still doesn't have a firm or at all concretized approach and interaction with pitchers across the league. They're still adjusting what they're doing to him. He is counter-adjusting, but not all the adjustments work, and there will be long periods over which he's either absolutely locked in or absolutely lost. It's not for a lack of adjustment. It's because he's adjusting many, many things and not all those adjustments work. That's hard to bet on because what if, you know, these are the kind of issues that colored the last free agent who hit the market this young, Jason Hayward, when you tried to pin down his offensive profile. Was he a power hitter or more of an on-base guy? Was he going to develop certain skills and get better and better at them or turn the other way and we've obviously seen the way that's gone Harper is a better offensive talent than Hayward is or ever was I don't want to directly compare the two but it's illustrative that if you have a young guy who's hitting free agency still in his mid-20s it's a good thing if he's established a performance level and a a path to that overall production that is consistent. But what if it's a guy who has produced but does not have any sort of consistent method, uh, who is changing what he's doing frequently and in a large way? Uh, Do you really know who he is as a hitter or who he'll be when the next wave of adjustments from the league hit him? And that's to speak nothing unlike Machado, who, you know, may be limited, as I said, to playing third base in the future, may eventually cease to be a gold glove third baseman or a, you know, passable shortstop. He's still going to have some defensive value, pretty much, you know, into his early to mid-30s, you'd hope, unless he does take that sort of Miguel Cabrera-ish turn. But Harper, you could argue he already has lost all his defensive value, He's a corner outfielder who is maybe not a minus out there. Depends on what defensive metrics you believe. If you believe none and just want to follow the eye test, he's not a center fielder. The Nationals tried that a couple of times. Once when he was much younger and once for a good stretch of this past season. He failed those tests. He is not a center fielder. And even in a corner, you know, his arm is good, although diminished somewhat by an injury that weakened it a lot, I think, in 2016. 
his range is acceptable, but he's not special. He's not adding any kind of defensive value, and at his position, he doesn't add positional value per se either. You're talking about a guy where all the value lies in the bat, and you're not quite sure what the bat is. You're pretty sure it's a good uh, stick, an above-average offensive profile, probably well above average. But that 2015 Bryce Harper, that's the only season in which he sustained that level of success for a full season. Even, you know, there were parts of 2016 and 2017 where he looked like that guy. Not very much in 2018. But again, the counterbalance of those slumps that he would go into as he's trying to refine an approach that is still very fluid. Have to worry some teams who again are being asked to invest not in a couple of years, but in presumably eight or more. Now this is where that Scott Boris special, the thing that he is dubiously dubbed the swell opt, <laughs> could come into play. Uh, I am not going to call it the swell opt. That's dumb. But to catch people up, if they haven't been listening to quite as much of Boris's rambling as I have, These are deals like the one that Jake Arrieta and Zach Britton have signed recently. I believe Yusei Kikuchi also signed a similar deal with Seattle where there's a base of a relatively high annual average value but short deal. And then after a couple of years, a team reaches a decision point and they can trigger a long-term extension at, again, a healthy AAV But if they elect not to, the player can instead opt out rather than play out the final season of their deal. uh, And they can become a free agent immediately. Again, we're not going to call that a swell opt. I've been test driving some things at the moment. I'm trying uh, the Beyonce clause because if you like it after a few years, you need to put a four-year extension on it or it gets the right to walk away. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll land on something. But the point is, that kind of deal could be perfect if, you know, it, it would have to be at a preposterous scale, even relative to Kikuchi's, which was lucrative. We're talking about, in Harper's case, you know, what's that look like? Three years at $32 million a piece, and then before year four... A team has to decide to lock him in for six more and 200 million total or give him the right to opt out, something like that. Uh, so the stakes would be much higher. It may not be something either side is uh, enthralled about, but it may be the best way to reach a point where both sides are comfortable, you know, at least in a relative sense given, again, all the uncertainty that surrounds Harper, but all the talent that's there, too. You know, it may be that he's the perfect guy to say, we are ready to commit to the talent. But before we commit our franchise to his entire career arc, we'd like to see how all of these sort of variations and uh, adjustments and counter-adjustments and little nagging injury issues work out over the next few years and we'll 
pay the premium up front for the right to make that decision after 2021. It's probably not exactly where they would put that decision point because of the labor unrest and the uncertainty of the new CBA, but something in that vein is possible where Harper's concerned. Anyway, I think my central point was to loop back and say, with guys this good, in whom you're investing this much, I'm skeptical of an approach like the Phillies, which seems to be, we'll play them off each other and take whichever one we can get on the better deal. I'm skeptical of it because you shouldn't invest this much in a player unless you believe absolutely in them. And it's hard to imagine how they would believe an equal amount in these two players, given how radically different they are. There's a lot of positive and some negative with each, but surely any given set of decision makers has to be able to arrive at a strong preference for one of the two. Otherwise, maybe neither guy is the guy for you. We'll see how this plays out. I think it's probably going to be another week or more before they sign at this point. Uh, That's not the way it felt even a few days ago, but it certainly is now. But in the meantime, there's some food for thought. Anything that leaps out to you as inaccurate or worthy of contention, hit me up on Twitter at M.A. Trueblood. You can look for my writing at Baseball Prospectus for the foreseeable future, I guess we'll say. Uh, And uh, hopefully I'll be back with another one of these podcasts sooner than it was, uh, sooner than this one came on the heels of the last. Have a good one.